This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here today with a first time guest, Adam uh, Vasquez, who is the CEO of Merit out of Harrisburg, PA, and the author of a book called Toothfish, which will be the uh, the focus of today's interview. We're going to parse significant portions of this book. But first, Adam, uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit here. Awesome. Th- well, thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. It's been a great journey, and it's great to be on your show. So thank you. A uh, little bit about myself. Yeah, CEO of Merit. Uh, we, we're really a market invention consultancy. We do a lot of things, uh, everything from what you think of sort of more tactical marketing to uh, in advertising to strategic positioning and, and business. Uh, our main office is in Harrisburg, but I'm, as you know, I'm down here in D.C., and we have a West Coast presence as well, as well with clients all over the globe. So I spent my first part of my career in the federal government space and marketing to the government to buy professional services and software. That evolved into working for companies like Tyco and other large publicly traded companies um, all over the world as a chief marketing officer role. And then, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to basically build my own consultancy because of basically demand in the market asking me to do so. So I I dropped the corporate life and started my entrepreneurship journey, you know, probably five, six years ago now. And it's been a heck of a ride. So thank you. Yeah. So there, there you go. Um, So you were able to do a little market invention on your own. Yeah. Yeah. Market invention is something I learned almost through the hard way as we, we all learn. And, and that's one of my points of, of teaching others how to do this. So they don't need to take as many, maybe unnecessary risks or have as many uh, bruises and batteries from my experience. So I can make it a little bit easier for other people. Yeah, it's always nice to have a little bit of a path laid out. Outside advice often helps. So we're going to be talking about uh, your book, Toothfish, um, which just came, correct me if I'm wrong, just came out early this year, right? Yeah, well, actually, it came out in 2019. You know, it's been really gaining a lot of traction in the consumer, uh, business-to-consumer and business-to-business uh, space. And it's it has been a really a, sort of a relatively new conversation and concept in more of that government and business-to-government space. Yeah, in, in the B2G space, I'm, I'm not positive, but we can get into this that uh, all of this applies. But how, how did you run across the concept for this? Because that in itself is a pretty neat story. Yeah, so it's kind of, as anything happens, it compounds and builds over time, right? So, you know, I've been doing this for over 20 years now. It's hard to believe because time flies as for all of us. But, you know, it started when I was really my first job in government consulting, working for a firm called Robbins Joya, 
they really invented the marketplace of what we call now modern day program and project management. Now, I wasn't experienced enough to understand what they were doing. And in all honesty, I think a lot of us, we weren't really sure of how to codify and bring it together. So that was a piece. And then when I was brought into Tyco Electronics to run marketing for their aerospace and defense business, I started to see this trend and we were starting to develop on the big guys, you know, these big, big companies where we really were in a leadership position that kind of dominated the industry. And, you know, a lot of mergers and acquisitions and a lot of traditional strategy to get there. But more importantly, we realized that there was a real big opportunity for us to own the connectivity marketplace and set a new flag for the industry. And with that, a lot of mistakes, but a lot of successes, we started to really uncover this trend and this new real, I guess I wouldn't call it new, but putting it together in a new way and talking about it in a new way so it was repeatable. And we started doing that. And there was a lot of things we did operationally, uh, digital transformation things, but these were all pieces as part of this bigger market invention. And it equated to about a roughly a $20 billion increase in market cap value. So we knew we had something there. And and then, uh, then my career evolved. And then eventually, I, I really understood this very well. And then it became a real success rocket ship for me and my own career in the corporate world. And then I realized other people, most people didn't realize this existed. And then that's when I jumped out on my own because I was getting a lot of questions and people wanting to replicate the success we had in these global companies for, for small businesses to get big or even big businesses that needed to uh, reestablish themselves. Okay. But the whole idea of Toothfish comes from a, a story yeah. that you you ran across a while ago. Yeah. So it's funny. It was a couple of things, right? So as you know, Mark, we get influenced by a lot of things and sometimes we're not even realize where we're being influenced. Right. And that's just the reality. And uh, the toothfish story of Patagonia toothfish with Lee Lance, as you've heard me talk about a million times, is a guy in 1977 and I'll just share the cliff notes with the audience was a, uh, you know, a fish wholesaler. And if you think about fish wholesaling, it's about as commodity and price-based as you can get. In any mature market, we're kind of in that environment if you want to be truthful. You know, it's about relationships. It's about, uh, you know, the best price. And, yeah, it's about quality. But if you're in that top group, your quality is just assumed. So that's really not even a differentiator anymore. So then you're about price and relationships, and, and those are good too, but people move around, and so relationships change. Anyways, so Lee Lance was struggling fish wholesaler, and he was looking for something new, something to change his predicament, and he went down to a South American fishing village to explore a new, you know, something new to bring to the market. And he, he you know, brought fish, were brought to him by his people he charters and he charters to, you know, his charter captains that go out and catches other fish like tuna, um, other things. And so he had this fish and he realized that this was a great fish. This was something that, that he could sell back to New York city for a high premium, everything else. Um, you can read more about it in the book, but long story short, this is how we get, uh, he renamed it. And this is how we get Chilean sea bass. Chilean sea bass is actually not a bass at all. It's hot. You know, most of us buy it and it's a multi-billion dollar fish market itself within a larger fish in, fishing industry. 
I discovered this process and that was one of those stories in the back of my mind. And, and I was trying to come up with a reference that was easy and understandable, Mark, so people could say like, oh, I get the concept. I understand what's going on here. They're creating these trends. They're creating a demand, but there's a real system to it. And, you know, who doesn't like a good fish story? It's weird because when, when uh, we've only known each other for a couple of months, and when we were talking uh, before about what we were going to talk about on the show, it became more of an idea and book swapping meet. And just to highlight this, it was weird because like the day after or the day before, it was a day before because I may have mentioned this, Harvard sent me a uh, Harvard Business Review sends me books uh, because I review some of their authors or interview some of their authors, both actually. Uh, but they, they sent me a book called Invent and Wonder, the collected writings of Jeff Bezos. And the introduction is by Walter Isaacson, who is more known for, you know, his, his works in history. Um, so it's, it's, it's very cool. But I mean, you know, the Invent and Wander. So uh, there, there's one for your reading list. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, Amazon, people get confused to what Amazon really is. It's really a market invention company. If you really think about it, they just happened to start with online book sales. That was their first market invention. And, and then it evolved from there. But, uh, it, it, you know, read Toothfish or any book on talking about this type of concept, market invention, and then you start seeing what they're doing. Uh, yeah, it makes sense. I know exactly what their playbook is. So, so, uh, and they've been obviously, arguably, one of the most successful companies ever doing this. Every market leader has done this. But we'll, we'll get into this too. It involved a heck of a lot of research by Mr. Bezos on the front end. So, um, yeah. we're going to take a quick break and then get into the uh, nuts and bolts of market invention. You're listening to Amtower off-center on the Federal News Network. I'll be back with Adam right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off-Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with Adam Vasquez, author of Toothfish, uh, The Origin of Markets, and the uh, founder and CEO of Merit, a, uh, may I call you a boutique agency? Sure. I mean, we, we specialize in market invention, but, uh, you know, people think small, but we've been growing pretty quickly and, and it's just because of this market invention. So it's been fun. Yeah. So in, in a nutshell, tell people what market invention is. Yeah, really, I mean, from an academic uh, description, market invention is really the process of shifting a market from the legacy market to a new value proposition, either to solve the existing pain the legacy market has not been solving well or to solve a completely new pain that uh, has not been identified or will be identified for. And, and what it does is it makes you the leader. It's a holistic approach. It does include the whole, whole organization, um, not to get big and scary. You can use it in a very tactical way. But the reality is every single leader in their market has followed this process, whether they realized it or not. So it's really, in many ways, it's, it's a pathway to success in market leadership. Okay. You know, one, one of the things that, you know, when, when you explained this to me before, I mentioned a book that you hadn't read, and it goes back to the early 80s, uh, Jack Trout and Al Reese, Marketing, The Position for Your Mind. Constantly, it talks about how, how markets are constantly evolving, uh, subsets are created, so 
your points of differentiation can lead you to niches where you can be that leader. So kind of a variation on, on your theme. But let, let me ask a slightly different question. Does market invention work for individual disciplines like sales, marketing, BD, as well as companies? Yeah, it, it does. I mean, in many ways, it's a bit of a philosophy. I mean, it, it, understanding it is the first step. And then you'll find that when you start to see things through a new lens. I like the joke, if you're a Matrix fan, it's like the red pill or the blue pill. And this is the pill that makes you discover that the, you know, that you're in the matrix, so to speak, and what's really going on. And then once you realize the physics or the aerodynamics of what's going on, then you can fly better, faster. You can, you can leverage those unchanging laws to actually your advantage where most people don't even know them that they exist. So as an example, in a, in a sales perspective, you know, just thinking about try, if you're somebody trying to grow new accounts or create new relationships, and if we think about in management consulting or consulting to the government, especially in IT and technology system integration space, you know, you're implementing somebody else's software um, and, and chances are they are a market inventor, whether it's Microsoft or AWS or whoever else or Salesforce.com in a CRM perspective. But you're really selling, you're, you're writing off of their, off their, you're drafting off of them but you're really not differentiating yourself from any other system integrator other than you're successful and you've done well. Well, when you measure it, everybody the same and everybody has the same case studies or equivalent case studies and past performance and quals and qualified people and all that stuff, then how do you change that conversation? And from a selling perspective, we all know we want something that creates interest so that you can have a deeper discussion and really get to the pains and issues solving you know, to solve for the customer pain. And when you go off and you're selling this or the appearance of selling the same thing that everybody else is, it's really hard to break through the noise. So from a business development, this is one of the best things that ever can happen to you because you can have a new conversation. As an example, Mark, there are probably millions of marketing and advertising agencies, right? I mean, that's probably fair to say. And I think, Mark, you probably wouldn't be interested for me even being on your show if I was just selling more content marketing and inbound marketing and, and, and like everybody else. Now, we do all those things, but it's a much more interesting conversation and it's more valuable if we're changing and moving the conversation forward in a new light. And, and that's what it allows you to do is have a new conversation where people are kind of tired of the old conversation and solving things the old way. So it enables your sales team and business development team, your business development team starts understanding the ecosystem because you got to map out the ecosystem of all the players that can be part of this market that you're developing. And then, so you're not just going out and you know who's going to be in the market and who's not to be. And also from a customer segmentation and from a marketing messaging, it changes everything because now suddenly you're a thought leader rather than a, uh, a me too uh, content provider, which I think we talk, we've talked about this in the past. Most people that say they're thought leaders are iterative at best, right? So it gives you a point of differentiation for any one of those conversations that you need to have to develop a market. 
Yeah, and and when we get into the research, uh, that that's where the thought leadership really comes into play because thought leaders uh, not only know the landscape, they know the trends, they have an intuition for what's really a trend versus a fad, and you know maybe even how to deal with it once it gets here. That's the the thought leader side, as opposed to whatever you want to call it. So the opportunity side, you know, developing the uh, new market research is huge here. And I'm assuming there's still books like this, but, you know, one of the phrases in your books triggered this. Uh, I had to pull down John Naismith's book from 1982, Megatrends. He's talking about stuff that did come to pass, maybe mm-hmm. not in the way he thought it would come to pass, but it was, you know, it was the big idea book that whetted your appetite for, basically whetted my appetite to do more research. Um, so getting started on the uh, developing the market opportunity, what kind of research are necessary to develop this, uh, this new market niche? Yeah, so the couple things here is there's a few data points, right? And and if we think about it this way, it's uh, in the book, I, I show a grid. It's a way that you can uh, visually take all this information, all these data points and put it in one place that makes it visual and easy to uncover. Because again, market invention is, I will say this, isn't meant to be this long research process that we, you know, Mark, you and I are traditionally used to by these market research companies. Because what happens is things change quickly and things are changing so rapidly now that we've got to almost put a bit of an agile, quick sort of approach to get us going, right? So the data points really break down to this. It starts with the customer pain as the number one data point. And customer pain comes from, you know, whether you've experienced it, a lot of great entrepreneurs or people in this space actually are solving the pain that bothered them the most, right? So it's easy for them to articulate it because they've experienced it. Not everybody's always experienced it, especially if it's an established business and you've got marketers in in an organization. So they don't have necessarily that first time experience. So as a a founder does of a company. So what what you really need to do is identify the pain, asking questions, um, you know, questions like say there's an incumbent trying to solve the same pain that you're trying to solve and you're trying to solve it in a new way, which is perfectly good. You know, you could ask them, what do you hate or what do you dislike most about working with XYZ company? And you'll be surprised. People really get out what they are. You know, that's primary research. So doing interviews, talking to people, but then the secondary part of that is reading articles, right? Just being a sponge, reading industry articles, non-industry articles, that kind of stuff. But you're going to need to do that anyways in this process, but just mapping them out. And then all you're doing is mapping out the keywords, the themes, the pain themes, and putting them on a sheet of paper that you're going to overlay everything else on. And what you're doing is it's a bit of a heat map exercise where you're trying to see where the concentration of people are trying to solve pain. And, and that's okay, but you'll know where everybody is and where nobody else is. And, and that's where this starts to get very similar to at least the idea of it concept to that the concept that I really like the concept of that blue ocean concept. This is not blue ocean. Certainly we're all inspired and influenced by that, but you know, this is less academic and more, this is how we do it. So then after you have the customer pain, then you're going to be pulling in all of the uh, 
I would say, influencer research. So that influencer... Hold on, hold on to that thought a moment because we need to take a break. Uh, sure. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'll be back with Adam to pursue this right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with Adam Vasquez. We're discussing the, uh, the book Toothfish, uh, The Origin of Market. So available at Amazon. And, uh, you know, I guess if you go to a brick and mortar, probably there too. So the market research is odd coincidence. You know, this morning before we went uh, on uh, to record, I got an email from Forrester Research and they listed the, uh, or they did a study on the top 10 social listening tools out there. And that's one of the tools that you're going to use to do research, to understand the pain points to understand the trends, see which are trends and which are fads, and uh, to get back to those uh, that customer pain side. So yeah, take it from there. Well, that's a great segue, Mark, because the next thing is the influencers, and and the best way of doing these social listening tools. And there's a bunch, and they're they're used by PR agencies. I mean, we use this for our own media outreach and influencer outreach because influencers a big piece of this. And influencers are, we'll talk about this, mega influencers, industry influencers, anybody who's talking about these pains being solved and everything else. So what you do now is you actually go out and use these key themes, that pain themes, and then you start looking, scanning the environment, the industry publications, what have you, about articles and who's talking about it and who's not. So once you do that, then that's good. Then you're going to start overlaying that. Then you look at competitors. And so this is where people get a hiccup in competitive research. They try to research everything about a competitor. And honestly, all you care about is how that competitor is solving the pain. And there's direct competitors and indirect competitors, right? So, but focus on direct competitors because you can get lost in the indirect competitors, meaning people that are in the industry trying to solve it today. And there may not be any competitors, but then, then you have to look to see who else is trying to solve that same pain in different ways outside the industry. So you're going to their websites, you're looking at all this information, you're going to their strategic plan, their planning documents, if they have them out there, which a lot of people have them, especially if they're a publicly traded company. And then you're overlaying them, mapping them on top of the pain, right? So now you've got a real clear view of where the influencers are, where the competitors are. And then there's two other last data points that are really key. We'll talk about the mega trends, but first is your own strengths, right? So I'm not I'm necessarily not a huge SWAT strength, weaknesses, opportunity, threats person. I, you're going to uncover the opportunities in this process. Threats, honestly, threats are irrelevant because you know you're going to a space where you know that most people aren't aren't in yet. And um, weaknesses, the whole point of market invention is not focusing on your weaknesses. You should be aware of them, but it's focusing on your strengths. So what are you good at, right? So that's your own internal research. You got to decide what you're good at so that you are using this lens of what am I good at? What can I leverage to solve this pain in a new way or pain that nobody is addressing because everybody's focused up here in this upper right quadrant. Nobody's talking about these things here. And then last but not least is the mega trends. And the mega trends come through like cloud. And you could argue uh, bots are a mega trend. RPA is an industry trend that, or, you know, robotics process automation that's leveraging that mega trend. AI is a mega trend. Cybersecurity is a mega trend. It is not 
an industry in itself. It kind of is an industry, but it's not a, uh, um, I would say, necessarily an industry trend or a niche. So you start looking at those things on the left side, and then you can start understanding how can I leverage those mega trends, and what are those mega trends that I can use to solve, like cloud computing or AI to solve these pains in a unique new way that nobody else is solving, and then that starts to uncover the opportunities that you write down and gets you to close one step closer to what your market invention will be, and that's okay. really the research you need to do. Okay, so in a quick nutshell, um, what are the main sources for this? So, like industry publications, social yeah. listening. Yep. Yeah, industry publications, social listening. I, you know, there's some mega influencers. Uh, you know, you mentioned Forrester. They, I look at them as more of a uh, a mega influencer. They're looking across industries, so they're a good source for uncovering mega trends and seeing where they are. Gardner is another good one. And there's plenty other ones, Frost and Sullivan. I mean, there's there's endless opportunities out there. Uh, there's also you know public you know uh, popular journals like things even like Wired, TechCrunch, these kind of things on the technology side. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, even cultural things. So uh, I mean, I've seen people pull out trends out of People, you know, People Magazine. Uh, I haven't read People Magazine in a long, long time. I'll be honest, I don't even know if it's still how popular it is, but. My only point is that's where you're looking for this research. And then, and then any sort of firsthand research that you can use. So meeting people, talking to people, um, and then the competitor research comes from their websites. Most publicly traded companies need to tell you where they're focused and where they're going. So it, a lot of it is right there. Yeah. How, how do you leverage internal resources, your employees during this process? If you have BD people out there, if you have butts and seats in agencies or you're, you're working with partners, how, how do you aggregate the potential knowledge there? Yeah. So, I mean, if you have any of those things, you're, you have a huge advantage, uh, right? Because you have direct access to the knowledge, right? It's the old joke, uh, you know, if you look at product management and, and technology and innovation people from a strategic side, you know, they will argue that a company that just listens to their salespeople for new products and new features and everything else, you get end up getting a Frankenstein software because customers, you know, I, I think the old quote from Henry Ford, and I'm not sure if he, it's really who it's attributed to. If we were to ask customers what they want, they would ask for a faster horse. So, and Steve Jobs knew this too. So you're not asking for a solution per se. It's your job to uncover what is their hiccups, where are the issues, where are the inefficiencies, and then capture that and then aggregate that and bring it back to the team as a team, you know, and, and then look to see if we're going to solve it or not and prioritize it. So from a business development side, you know, good business development people have a real finger on the pulse of the key issues facing everyone because they ask a lot of questions, which you're supposed to, and you should. But marketers tend to look more at secondary research because they're not on the front lines. And so you, that's where I would go. I would just ask people what's not working. Even ask them, like, how can, like, what's not working with how we work together? Uh, a lot of companies are afraid to ask that question. And I think that is, uh, you know, most customers. I know it's in the federal space, you know, because of a lot of other regulations and processes and everything else, they need to tell you what you're doing wrong and give you the opportunity to fix it. 
but not in the commercial space. You'll just lose customers and may never know. Your best customers tell you what are you messing up. And where you're messing up is a lot of big opportunities because chances are if, if you're having this problem, the industry is having this problem and it could be a place where you could really change and make the industry better. Right. So you, you also touch on uh, the overthinking the process. How do you know when you, you have enough information versus too much? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think intuitively it's a little bit different for everyone. Uh, I'm okay with making, I'm a little bit higher risk person, so I'm okay with taking, making decisions with incomplete information. Other people need more than they need, right, depending on who you are. So I think that you have to equate that. But, uh, but I, I, you know, when you talk about, let's just talk about customer pain interviews. Um, the ideal state is 10. 10 people, you know, that you want to really kind of talk to. Some people don't have that ability or luxury or that time. So that's when you back it up with secondary research. But, you know, you'll start to see it fill out and you'll feel like I've got enough here, enough sample size. But from a, from a pure customer interview perspective, 10, yeah, if you want to get to 30, great. But then it starts to get to a point of diminishing returns. Now you could do something much bigger, of a 3000 sample size for some bigger, larger consumer things. But even then you're going to get repeats and you don't need that, that really that size it, uh, you know, going to that sample size is more of going to the market and validating your point of view uh, through the market to start a conversation from a media perspective rather than from an initial research perspective. So I would say, you know, get at least try to get 10, at least a handful of different people giving you perspectives and then use that as the basis to start doing research. And you're going to find that there are pains that you didn't uncover from these customer interviews or non-customer interviews. Prospect interviews are even better. But uh, and, and just by looking and seeing what customers are doing or competitors are doing and seeing that, oh, wow, there is a real big thing here. What are they talking about? And then and somebody may not have even brought that up. So you end up covering it all. But I, from a competitor research perspective, I wouldn't do more than three. Um, you could do five if you want to be really good at it, but three and remember, focus on the actual pain because that's where you're focusing your research on who is solving the pain, who's talking about it, who's not talking about it. And that's where you need to focus it. And that helps streamline uh, the research completely, like significantly in the time needs. Cool. We're going to take our last break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'll be back to wrap up with Adam right after this. Welcome back to Tower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm wrapping up today with uh, with Adam Vasquez, who is the CEO of Merit Agency, based out of Harrisburg, PA, but with offices here in DC and out in uh, Silicon Valley. Uh, MadeWithMerit.com is the website. Adam is on LinkedIn. Reach out. Uh, so. A couple of times during our conversation here, you had mentioned mega influencers and industry influencers. Uh, give me a brief definition of each and how do you identify the real ones as opposed to those who, uh, you know, have a flag, wave it, and when you sit down with them, there's not a hell of a lot of substance. Yeah, there's a lot of them. So, so first, the definition of mega versus industry. So a mega influencer would be someone like, 
Oprah Winfrey, right? They span across multiple industries that you, you know, you'd be on a book club and then sell millions of copies, right? So they influence big mega trends. Um, and, you know, six company CEOs can be mega influencers. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things, right? And, and obviously that's the holy grail in this world is, you know, you, if you can be a mega influencer, great. It's not for everybody, nor do you need to be a mega influencer to win, but that's a mega influencer. The industry influencers are those who, like Mark, you're, you're, you're a clear industry influencer. So um, those are those that are focused on an industry, growing it, uh, nurturing it, bringing uh, leadership content, new ideas, things of that to the market. Um, and that's an industry influencer. Now, industry experts are not necessarily influencers, if that makes sense. You know, you get a lot of experts and sometimes people confuse those two together too. And so how do you know the fake versus the real deal? Yeah, you know, I, I like to start with asking around your network. Like, who do you talk to? Who's real? Because what happens is, is on the street, there will be a lot of, you know, somebody may have a big social media presence and whether they purchased it, because you can purchase a, a group big following on Instagram per se or not. And so it's artificial. But when you, you start really understanding who they are and who they're influencing, they're not the people you want to influence. Um, they are, they're talking to a different audience and you know, there may not be any depth to what they're talking about, which you, you, you know, you just exposed Mark. Um, but honestly, it's a lot of asking around and referrals, right? I mean, in many, as simple as it seems, you can look to see who's getting a lot of speaking engagements, whose articles, like who's writing articles, go out to the industry publications, who are those people? That's a great source, obviously. Uh, you know, uh, you know we, were, we were just doing a game conference with Government Marketing University. You know, obviously, Luann's a big influencer uh, with them. So, I mean, there's a lot of influencers out there, but you've got to be able to find it. And then also with the whole market invention thing is it's about collaboration in that market. So you need to find influencers you can work with and collaborate with, too. Uh, because not all influencers will agree with your point of view and or or share it or want to build it because they see it too. So there's a lot of learning in there. And sometimes you make mistakes and sometimes you partner with the wrong influencers. This happens and you just need to be willing to make those mistakes. Yeah. And one one of the uh, the great things about Government Marketing University and especially about GAIN is what you just indicated there. And that is the ability of people with thoughts to get together and share them because knowledge is a collaborative effort. And the more you collaborate, the higher we all go. So, you know, rising tide raises all ships, right? Absolutely. So, but, yeah. but, you know, there's always one or two people there who don't know how to swim. So. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and you're in the front lines of this building digital footprints for influencers and companies and everything else, right? I mean, it, the whole th idea of, you know, with COVID where we can't go to these events we all used to go to and meet each other and everything else has really hurt a lot of companies and business development efforts and influencing. So digital influencers, which there are some, but it's really still getting traction in the government space, but 
there's some big influencers that are just offline influencers that you'll never know and you'll never meet and you'll you'll have to meet through somebody knows somebody some somebody right that are just behind the shadows and those are influ those are real influencers just if they even if they don't have a, a social media presence now those individuals that don't have social media presence are are becoming less and less influencers that generation is fading but you know, in the intelligence community, as you know, in the you know, you almost don't want a a very big digital footprint because you are behind the shadows. So that's where you've got to network, you know. Right. But but you know, I, I want to get into one final area, and you, you kind of led to it with the uh, you know we can't do events. Uh, the events companies and some of the producers have morphed tremendously in this. And they've separated themselves from their competitors by their agility, their rapid response to this whole pandemic thing. Um, but a lot of companies out there, you know, they'll, they'll, they call you, they call me, and they say, well, what are these people doing? Should we do that? What's wrong with this picture? Yeah, so the Me Too syndrome, right? So, uh, you know, following the, following the followers who follow the leader, right? So, what the, the whole premise of it is is fine. I mean, listen, you can create a nice lifestyle business, and you'll make some good money just doing following, keeping up with the Joneses, and doing what everybody else is doing. And and if that's your strategy, there's nothing wrong with it. By the way, Burger King is a you know. A very wealthy organization and they follow the leader um, that compared to say a McDonald's and such. And, and they make and a better burger. <laughs> they do make a better burger, but I totally agree. Uh, but some people don't disagree with that. Right. So, but your point is, is taken. So, you know, you can make a choice of if you want to be a market follower, you're always going to first your view and the smell never changes when you follow somebody as the old saying goes. And, um, your conversations are going to be iterative. It's going to be harder to sell um, because you're not really offering any new ideas or any new value. Because what happens is, you know, this, when the leader is established, they kind of represent all the industry terms, the status quo, like the, the trends, all of that is coming out of the leader. So when you go out and sell and you might spend a ton in advertising, right? Or you might promote these events and everything else. When, and if somebody is looking for, uh, we'll just use the old Robin story example, pro program management. Say people are looking for program management. They're going to discover who is the leader in that service because they're going to go online and they're going to uncover who the leader is. So you may have spent all this money to promote yourself, but really all you're doing is promoting the market, which the leader gets the benefit more than you do. So you're really in many ways wasting your money and the sales and marketing, um, and even your sales team, because your sales team may call on customers and try to build rapport and all this good stuff that, that <laughs> you're supposed to. But when you're selling this, they're like, okay, cool. I didn't even think about it. I'm going to do my research. They're going to do their research. They're going to go online and then they're going to discover, they're going to go to Forrester or a Gardner or whoever and discover who the leader is. And then when they do that, they've got to think about what they have to sell to their leadership team. Well, I've got it. I want to use this company. Well, why don't we use the leader? Well, well, they're cheaper or I know I like them better. But you see, that's the value proposition you're suddenly going off of. It's cheaper 
Um, it may be faster, but it's really not. And so then it's the old saying of nobody ever got fired for hiring IBM, right? So, so that's in many ways is kind of what you're fighting against. And so mirroring the competition is maybe good for cash flow, and, but you will never, you'll, you'll always struggle with competition undercutting you from price, doing it faster, cheaper, um, uh, you know, making, you know, the relationships, if you don't have the relationships and it's going to be extremely hard for your sales team to even get that first meeting because they're going to be like, Oh, I heard it before. I heard it before. This is just, you're just another system integrator. I, I've already got developers. I already got, I hired IBM already. I hired these guys already over here. I don't need you. And, and so then you're struggling in that kind of, you know, environment and it sucks. I've been there. It's just not a good place to be. And then you're just sounding like a leader, which again, you're just making their market, confirming their value prop and they're getting the lion's share of that revenue. Yeah. Um, quick aside, not really an aside, an example. Um, you know, a lot of people uh, uh, wonder how McKinsey is able to charge even our, in our market uh, a much higher rate. Well, the simple answer is they're McKinsey and you're not. Well, exactly, because they brought strategic uh, strategy to the market, strategic management consulting to the market. They almost, they really kind of invented management consulting. Actually, um, they didn't. Boston Consulting Group did. Well, BCG did, but you're right. But McKinsey understood the power of, you know, whether they understood market invention more than BCG did or not. Yeah. With the McKinsey Quarterly and the knowledge and building the content and educating people where BCG stayed more as a just consultant play where uh, McKinsey started to educate the market. And, and, it, and so that's a great point. Just because you're first to market doesn't mean in a market invention means you'll stay the leader. And that's a great point. Right. And final point there, you know, I still find it odd, and we talked about this before, too, that strategy was not a serious business topic yeah. until the late 60s with Bruce Henderson at BCG, and it wasn't even called BCG at the time. This has been a blast, man. We're going to have to do it again. And I think you and I should start a book club, too, not just for the books that we write, but, you know the stuff that we read and I've got a couple more to share with you after the show. Uh, Anyway, again, thanks. You can find uh, Adam at madewithmerit.com. You can find him on LinkedIn. I suggest you do both. Um, And uh, this is not my day job. I do advise companies on all aspects of marketing to the government, but I specialize in that differentiation category, building the thought leadership platform, leveraging social media, particularly LinkedIn, to build your network and influence that network. So if that resonates, drop me a line at markamtower at gmail. And thank you for listening to Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.